1: Welcome to Drumtower. I'm David Rennie, the Economist's Beijing bureau chief, and I'm here with my co-host Alice Su.
0: On February 4th, 2022, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin declared the start of their no-limits friendship. Weeks later, the Russian president ordered his troops to invade Ukraine. Last week,
1: in the first episode of our two-part series, looking at China's relationship with Russia, we asked, are there any limits? to Xi and Putin's no-limits friendship, and we asked how the Chinese Communist Party views Russia's war with Ukraine. If you've not heard that show already, we would love it if you could go back and listen.
0: In today's episode, we're asking, could Xi Jinping stand to gain from Putin's war on Ukraine? Who gets more out of this no-limits friendship, China or Russia?
1: And I traveled to China's frozen far north to visit its border with Russia. I explored what has pulled China and Russia apart in the past and what ties them together today?
0: This is Drum Tower. from The
1: Economist.
0: Hello, David. How are you?
1: Well, my weekend changed. I was expecting to cover the visit of the United States Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, to Beijing, but he didn't show up. And instead, I've been talking to experts in China and America about spies in the sky.
0: Oh, the balloon.
1: The balloon.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think of all the things that could have happened to interrupt or to derail the US-China relationship, nobody could have predicted that it would be a a balloon over Montana.
1: You didn't have that on your bingo card?
0: No, I didn't. I didn't.
1: But you know, it's a serious (laughs) political issue because clearly for the American public, seeing that thing overhead Mm -hmm. brings home in a really kind of tangible way the idea that China is a threat. And we are going to be talking about China-America relations in the episode next week. In fact, even this week, I'm going to be talking to the American podcast Checks and Balance that The Economist does. And our colleagues talked about it already on The Intelligence on Monday this week. As for Drumtower, we're going to devote next week's episode to US-China ties. But first, we promise listeners the second half of our take on China-Russia relations because it's the first anniversary of Xi Jinping's no-limits friendship with Vladimir Putin. And I'm really glad that we've done these two episodes because you can't understand how America and other Western governments see China today unless you grasp just how shocked many Western leaders have been by China's refusal to condemn the war in Ukraine. Not to mention, recent media reports that big Chinese firms are supplying Putin's war machine. So all these big geopolitical forces are linked. But before we start on all of that, Alice,
0: how was your week? Thanks, David. My week was fine. I mean, aside from all the spies in the sky and geopolitics, I also had family visiting here in Taiwan. I was able to take them to the National Palace Museum, which, as you know, holds all of the treasures that were taken from the Forbidden City in Beijing. And sadly, I didn't get to see the the most famous item in the museum, which is this piece of jade shaped like a cabbage. It was on loan to another museum. But I did get to see the other very famous rock shaped like a piece of fatty pork And, and also many interesting artifacts of jade and bronze and so on. How about you, David? Did you make it to the China-Russia border without getting frostbite?
1: I did. I had a fantastically enjoyable trip up to the frozen north. I did prepare for it somewhat ineptly by going ice skating in Beijing, falling over and spraining my wrist. And so I discovered how to say I've sprayed my wrist in Chinese, which I didn't know before. And I also discovered that if you're taking a hard sleeper train and you have the top of the six bunks, that going up the ladder in the middle of the night on a moving train with one arm is actually quite a scary (laughs) business.
0: I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm glad that you seem to be fine and that you managed to make that trip anyway. Um, I was actually really excited to hear about that trip because you and I were talking about the Sino-Russian relationship last week. And then we decided, oh, maybe you should go to the China-Russia border and talk to people there right on the edge of the two countries and understand what Chinese people are thinking about Russia at this moment in time.
1: That's right, Alice. because as we're going to explore in this week's episode, you can't understand this current no-limits friendship unless you understand that it has had moments of really dark confrontation, even war. Russia grabbed one and a half square million kilometers of territory from the last enfeebled imperial dynasty. And now it's kind of this giant relationship about geopolitics and trade. There's no better place to see that than the province of Heilongjiang, right up in the top right-hand corner of China next to Siberia. So the first place I went is Harbin and of course that city alone is an amazing piece of history because it didn't exist until the end of the 19th century when imperial Russian railway engineers and troops basically built a railway and made that a hub and this city rose out of nowhere filled with Russian and European buildings which are still there and I went to the most famous of those European buildings and recorded you a voice note. Alice, it's just four seven in the evening, and I am in Harbin, in the far north of China. It's about minus 18, uh, and I'm outside an old Russian Orthodox cathedral, which has now become a tourist site and a museum. And if you want a symbol of how the politics and the sometimes very violent history of this relationship between China and Russia has become totally sanitized into friendship and a tourist angle here... This cathedral is exactly that. And the tourists there, when I talked to them about their feelings about Russia, they said that they didn't know much about it, that it was pretty friendly. And... Basically, everyone either said they didn't have a particularly strong view on the war in Ukraine, or even China-Russia diplomatic relations, or said the standard line that they hear on state TV, state media, that this is America's fault and NATO's fault, and that China is a friendly bystander with really nothing to do with it whatsoever. And so the war uh, has not changed their view. And frankly, I think most people are just here because it's a great place to take a photograph and imagine you're in Europe for a bit.
0: That's so interesting to hear that people are there to pretend that they're in Europe or to take photos and to imagine they're in Europe. Is Because you're saying, you know, this is a Russian cathedral, but it's still in a Chinese city, right? Or does the city itself feel very much like you're in a different country?
1: Bits of it definitely feel very far from China. And that was controversial for a while, right? Because this was basically a quasi-colonial project. And in the height of the Mao era, when you had the Cultural Revolution and all things foreign were suspect and the Soviet Union had a terrible relationship with China, Red Guards actually ransacked this cathedral. And then it was turned into a warehouse for a department store, hidden from view by other buildings. But at a certain time in the 1990s, the city government decided this is actually a tourist site. And what's really interesting is... Even the staging of this exhibition is all about Sino-Russian friendship. So when I went in, there was a young Chinese pianist at a grand piano and he was playing the famous Russian folk song, Moscow Nights. And he had people sitting around and taking pictures and listening to the music. But then straight after the young man on the piano... You had a young Chinese woman playing the flute, and she was playing that extremely patriotic Chinese song, "Me and My Motherland."
0: 我和我的祖国.
1: (laughs) 我和我的祖国. And so you see, in Harbin, Russia isn't controversial. The history isn't controversial, and Putin's war with Ukraine has not made Russia into a pariah in mainstream Chinese opinion here.
0: It's just like tourist kitsch. Did you talk to anybody on the ground about that history and about what's happening today?
1: Yeah, I talked to a bunch of people in the old cathedral. Two of the most interesting were some students from Liaoning, nearby province. They said straight up that they admire Vladimir Putin. they think that although he's a bit of an old man, he looks after his own people's interests. Uh,
2: Putin总统，你觉得他是不是？我很我很我很佩服，起码这么大岁数了，还是可以起码。<laughs>
1: And when I asked them about what they thought of Ukraine, because they mentioned they had some Chinese friends who had been studying in Ukraine when the war broke out, they said that they felt very sorry for the Ukrainians who didn't want this war and who wanted peace as soon as possible. But if you dig into that, it sounds kind of nice, but actually there's no acknowledgement that Ukrainians might think that actually they are choosing to fight to defend their homeland. These Chinese students who thought they were talking about the need for peace We're actually saying that Ukraine should just stop fighting straight away and not try and take any of that territory back from Russia. And they said that China is particularly wonderful because it it only wants world peace. They then quoted basically from their textbooks that China had learned Marxist Leninism from Russia and has now turned into a soaring dragon of the East. And then one of them chipped in and said, and the West is in slow decline. And you see there the power of the party line because... That reduction of the whole Sino Soviet relationship with all its twists and turns and near wars has been turned in Chinese school history books into China learned Marxist Leninism from Russia and, and improved it with Mao Zedong thought. And so you see the power of the education system and state media to shape how people view not just history but world events.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. So Chinese textbooks recount the history of that relationship one way, but I wanted to get a fuller picture, a more objective picture, if you will, of how that history actually happened. So for that, I spoke with Joseph Torigian, who is an expert on Chinese and Russian elite politics and history at American University in Washington, D.C. He's also writing a biography of Xi Jinping's father, Xi Zhongxun. So I asked him to walk me through the Sino-Soviet split through the lens of the Xi family.
3: When the PRC was established in 1949, they didn't really have a good sense of how to run the economy, how to run the government. But they had a model, which was the Soviet Union, which was the regime that had inspired and then supported the Chinese Communist Party. So for years, they essentially wanted to copy exactly what was going on in Moscow. So in 1953, the year that Xi Jinping was born, the top slogan in China was the Soviet Union of today is our tomorrow.
0: Joseph Turgen told me about how when the PRC was first established, there was this honeymoon period, if you will, with the Soviet Union. There were 11,000 Soviet specialists who were sent to China to teach different kinds of technology, different ways of development. And Zizongshun worked really closely with these experts. But later on, though, the Sino-Soviet relationship changed drastically. In 1959, Xi Zhongxun took a trip to the Soviet Union. He went to the mausoleum of Lenin and Stalin. He went to Lenin's apartment. The following year, all of those experts that he had been working with were withdrawn. And a few years later, in 1962, Xi Zhongxun was purged. He was accused of many things, but one of them was that he was a spy for the Soviet Union.
1: It's so amazing that Xi Jinping's father was absolutely at the heart of all of that. And of course, it's so revealing not just about Mao's China, but now Xi Jinping's China, that the crime that the Soviets committed that made Mao Zedong distrust them was that they started to say that the intensely brutal one-man autocratic rule of Joseph Stalin had been a bad thing and started to talk about uh, reform and moving away from that. And of course, that was a direct threat to Mao Zedong, who had modelled himself in some ways on Stalin. And so now you see in Xi Jinping's China party propaganda materials telling party members at least and party officials that indeed denouncing Stalin was a terrible mistake, just as Gorbachev is demonizing Xi Jinping's China by ending the Soviet Union by giving up total control of the party.
0: Yeah, that is right. Something really interesting that Turugian brought up is that while the Sino-Soviet split was ideological, it was also in part geopolitical and it had to do with their competing visions about how to relate to the West.
3: In the 1950s and 1960s, the Soviet Union certainly wanted to compete with the United States, but Nikita Khrushchev was also worried about the competition going off the rails, and he was afraid of nuclear war in particular. China, on the other hand, felt like it was left out of the international system, and they wanted a more aggressive position toward the West and support for revolutions throughout the world.
0: What Turrigan was saying was that the Soviet Union had reached a point where they were actually worried that China was going to go out of control. Khrushchev was critical of Mao's tendency towards radicalism, and they were worried that maybe China would even drag them into nuclear conflict with America. That's
1: right. You had those amazing scenes where Mao stunned his fellow communist world leaders by saying, would a third world nuclear war be so bad? because maybe hundreds of millions of people would die, but the vast majority of the survivors would be communists. And so was that such a bad thing?
0: And then when the Soviets were critical and skeptical of that, Mao started saying, these guys are going soft on the West. They're revisionists. They're losing sight of the original vision. And it's kind of interesting to look back and think about all this, because nowadays it's Russia that has taken a big risk, while China still wants to be part of a stable global system, although they want to reshape it in their own interests. But in the 1950s, it was the other way around. And of
1: course, this is a triangular relationship, right? There's always America as the third player in the room. And it was as Sino-Soviet relations got so bad that in the late 1960s, you had fighting over an obscure border river that some people worry could drift into war between two nuclear powers. As Mao started to think that the Soviets might attack and invade China, that was what made him ready to accept first a secret envoy from his capitalist enemies in America, Henry Kissinger, and then soon after have a public visit from the American president, Richard Nixon. It was that fear of the Soviets that made him edge towards the Americans.
0: You know, you can see why there is this deep distrust still between China and Russia, given the way that this triangular relationship has shifted in the past. Something I always think about when when we talk about China and Russia is despite their close relationship all the way back in the 1950s, up until recent years, America has had so much more soft power influence on China than Russia, right? When you talk to Chinese people for a long time, like the movies they watch, the music they listen to, the universities they want to send their kids to, the universities that Communist Party leaders want to send their kids to are in America, they're not in Russia. But I have been wondering, you know, in the last few years, with the tensions between American and Chinese governments and this friendship between Xi and Putin, has that changed at all? Is there any growing Russian soft power or Russian attraction to Chinese people? And I'm curious, you know, what is that like at the border?
1: You know, Alice, actually, I asked the two students I met in that cathedral in Harbin, uh, if they had the choice, would they rather study in America uh, or russia and uh, they said we don't want to study in america so it's too luan. messy that chaos you know that means it's the gun massacres and stuff they see on chinese news every night russia they said was a little cold which i think was a bit of a cop-out <laughs> um, and then they said they'd like to study in the uk
0: oh that's nice <laughs> so that's what people were saying in heart being right but what about up in Heha, right at the border what was it like there that
1: was so interesting. So to get there, I took a 12-hour sleeper train from Harbin overnight up through these frozen landscapes. I mean, very beautiful in some ways. And that border city, Heja, which has grown so enormously in the last 10, 20 years, is unbelievably close to Russia. It's just across a pretty narrow river. And on the other side is a Russian city that's also grown enormously. But not that long ago, that was a scene of enormous tensions. And in fact... There's a local museum there, built at the very end of the Mao era, but renovated several times recently, which records attacks by Russian troops under the Tsar, and it's so intensely anti-Russian and so explicit and graphic that Russian travellers are basically not allowed. I asked the guards at the museum, "Is it true that Russians are not allowed?" And they said, "Generally, you know, that is true. You know, And I had to show my British passport to get in. Alice, I'm standing outside the Aihui History Museum. It's an extremely sombre place. It remembers not only several border wars, but also a massacre that took place in 1900, where several thousand Chinese peasants were driven into the river by Cossacks from the Tsar's army and drowned. And there's an extremely graphic diorama, huge panoramic painting with mannequins in front and a kind of fake landscape. And you see them shooting, drowning children, women in the river. You see them raping a Chinese woman, half-naked Russian soldiers dragging her off, really gruesome scenes, the village in flames. And there's very much a lesson that this was about China when it was at its weakest was taken advantage of. And at the end, you see an explanation of trying to combine this with today's friendship with Russia. And it says that we cannot forget history, but that remembering history doesn't mean revenge. And the best lesson is to grow strong and to build up the country and have a strong military. But it's interesting when you talk to locals in Heiha, a lot of them say they don't have any strong views of Russia, they don't want to talk about it, certainly don't want to talk about politics. But if you ask them whether they remember this massacre, they do. And one person said to me that the Russians are fair weather friends who come to the Chinese when they need something.
0: Hmm. You know, David, when you're describing that diorama, the first thing that comes to my mind is, of course. Recent reporting that we've seen of similar atrocities happening in Ukraine. And it's striking to me that the message at the end of those images and that history is not never again, but that it is we need to be strong. The second lesson is this happened. We have a museum to it, but don't let the Russians in to see that we're remembering this. And let's keep trading with them. Right. David, isn't there a new bridge that just opened last year close to Heha that goes across into Russia?
1: That's right, Alice. The other reason that I went up to Heihe is that if you want a symbol of China-Russia relations past and future, they just opened the first bridge across the border river. Uh, It actually was finished in 2019, but the Russians didn't want to open it for a long time. They kept dragging their feet because the Russians were very worried that Siberia is so empty of people and China is growing so fast that maybe it will just take over and fill up the Russian Far East. And so this bridge was not actually opened for three years. And then suddenly last summer, because the Ukraine war left Russia feeling very isolated, this finished bridge was suddenly declared open with fireworks and flags and trucks driving across in each direction. And there is a real tension between this absolute intention of telling the locals what happened in the past and an incredible kind of pragmatism about how Russia is a kind of exotic, neat tourist thing. So right next to this history museum that is so sensitive that Russians can't visit, you have a Russian-style campsite for holidaymakers to go to. And downtown Heger has a whole street of Chinese-owned stores selling Russian souvenirs.
0: Did you speak with people on the ground there? Were there traders, business people? What did they think?
1: Absolutely. And a really interesting place was this street, Highlandia, yeah, which is full of shops that sell Russian souvenirs. They frankly haven't had any visitors for three years because of COVID. But several of the shopkeepers there, these are people who before COVID would go over to Russia, buy stuff, can talk about what the Russians are like to do business with. But they all have complicated views. I said to one guy, Mr. Chung, who was in his shop having a cigarette with a friend of his. And I said, look, I've just been at that history museum. I saw that awful exhibition. Does that affect your views of Russia? Or can you keep that separate from trade? And he said, sure, there is a kind of Anger. I mean, he used this word really strongly. He he drawn, hate. And I was like, wow, it's like hatred. And he goes, well, the things they did, throwing people into the river, how can you not get angry about that? But he's also very clear that the bridge, if that really opens up and takes a lot of cargo across, that would be a big help for the economy and for China. And he said something I heard more than once in Heihe that there's not a lot of Russians who live. In Heihe, there are some beautiful Russian women, I was told, who marry Chinese men. And then with a bit of pride, they say that very few Chinese women would want to marry a Russian husband because they drink too much. There's definitely a bit of antipathy in two sides. When we got onto the war and what they thought of Ukraine, his friend with the cigarettes just started pounding me for being you Brits and the Americans, you're bullying Russia, you blew up the pipeline so that the Russians couldn't sell their gas and oil anywhere else.
0: Mm -hmm. He thought that Western countries blew up the pipeline.
1: Yeah, he said explicitly. uh, He said, Western countries blew up their pipeline. Don't you know all of this as a journalist?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And then he said to me at the end, This whole Putin started this thing? We would rather side with Putin than side with you, Brits. So it was definitely quite an edgy exchange. What I took from that is that if you think about how the options have narrowed for, say, the German government or the German business elite, that their are really profitable trade with Russia, that was made completely morally impossible and unsustainable by the fact that Vladimir Putin has just invaded his neighbor in this very cold-blooded way. Well, then you turn that on his head. Xi Jinping doesn't face any of those pressures he has so much more room for maneuver because there's this view that big countries bully small ones and might makes right. And so the idea that there's a kind of right and wrong in the Ukraine war, no, 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 this is just a test of strength. And that kind of deep cynicism, I think, is hugely advantageous to the Communist Party and to Xi Jinping.
0: Yeah, in some ways, it's a very bleak and very realist view of the world, right? And it goes back to that history museum where the big takeaway from Russia's land grab was not that there shouldn't be land grabs, but that China should be strong so that its land will not be grabbed by others. When you were describing that scene, I kept remembering going to this Communist Party museum in Shanghai, and there was this big slogan on the wall, and it said, If you fall behind, you will be beaten.
1: They used the same phrase on the wall of the museum in Ai Hui. Is it? It's there as well.
0: Exactly. When you think about that, the way that the Chinese leadership wants its people to think about the world, it's a really cruel and brutal dog-eat-dog world out there. It's troubling to hear that people have bought into that propaganda. And I think it's particularly troubling for me hearing it here in Taiwan because, of course, this is the view that China wants its people to embrace in case they want to make a move on Taiwan one day. They want to say, first of all, Taiwan is not a legitimate state. And secondly, if they do use force against Taiwan, they'll say, we were pushed into it. We were backed into a corner by America and NATO. And if the Taiwanese people suffer they will say, we're not the ones making them suffer. America and its allies are prolonging the war. They're helping Taiwan. It's it's those people helping the small country that are causing the suffering. It's just such a, a twisted way of, of telling the story. And yet and yet you can see that it's working for a lot of Chinese people. And it's a narrative they're going to want to push in the future.
1: It's just like during the Hong Kong process in 2019. It couldn't be that the 7 million people of Hong Kong thought they had any rights to defy the mainland. It can only be that there's Another big power behind the scenes pulling strings. That's always America.
0: You know, when we're talking about it, it seems so unbelievable. But I remember going to grad school in Beijing and talking to friends, you know, at one of the best schools in China, right, at Peking University. And I had just previously been working in the Middle East, covering the Arab Spring. And my Chinese classmates would ask me, you know, they would say, surely you don't believe that those uprisings were genuine, right? They were CIA funded. Why would anyone ever really participate in an uprising? on their own, there has to be a power behind. Everything is about big powers. It's not about individual people believing in wanting to have a better life and wanting to live a different way. Of course, that wasn't everyone, but it's sometimes just still shocking to me when I realize that that is the worldview of a lot of Chinese people.
1: And of course, Alice, you and I both agree that we should never treat the Chinese population as some brainwashed monolith. There is a diversity of opinions. But there's no doubt every time you go out and do interviews on the streets of China, you realize the power that the party wields with its ability to shape and limit information. So if that's the domestic side of this first year of the war in Ukraine, in the next half of this episode, we're going to look at how China can take advantage of this war in its bilateral relationship with Russia and across the whole world geopolitically.
0: You can read more about China's relationship with Russia in David's column this week in The Economist, which also has another article by one of our colleagues about a new U.S. congressional committee that is focused on China and yet threatens to exacerbate tensions between China and the U.S. You'll need to be a subscriber to read both of those stories. And we have a special introductory offer for our listeners. You'll find it at economist.com slash drum offer.
1: Welcome back to Drum Tower and the second episode in our two-part series exploring China's relationship with Russia.
0: We've just been talking about the Sino-Soviet split and the troubled division in the history of these two nations. And yet today, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping present themselves as pretty close friends. Apparently, they like to hang out together. Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have actually met in person 40 times over the last decade, which is more than Xi has met with any other leader. And one of the strange artifacts of their relationship is that they have spent a few of their birthdays together. You can hear Xi Jinping here saying that it's exquisitely beautiful cake. очень я без преувеличения дружеские отношения. Мы это всё время In this clip, you can hear Putin saying that his relationship with Xi is very close, that they're friends, and actually Xi Jinping is the only international leader that Putin has spent his birthday with.
1: Let's be clear, all those matey videos with cake and vodka, they were before Vladimir Putin invaded a neighboring country. And so a really big geopolitical test of whether Xi still wants to stand next to this man and call him his best friend will come this spring. The Russian foreign ministry Maybe to try and kind of set the agenda, talked about how Vladimir Putin has invited Xi Jinping to visit Russia this spring. They called it a central event in the agenda for the year. And they were revealingly open about how Russia, at least, has ambitions to use its friendship with China to challenge the West. And so those Russian officials talked about coordinating their foreign policy with China and talked about taking steps to fight the United States' attempts to achieve global dominance by promoting the concept of the rules-based order. And Alice, of course, you know that no Chinese diplomat would ever be so open about the idea that their goal is to overthrow the rules-based order.
0: Yeah, I mean, David, you know, I agree that China wouldn't be so explicit as to say, "Okay, we are teaming up with Russia to fight attempts by the United States to achieve global dominance. But are we so sure that they're not going to come out with a statement to that effect when they have this big visit? My expectation is that they could come out stronger, you know, on Russia's side, but they will want to couch it and they will use that code and that language we talked about in the last episode. So we've been talking about this upcoming visit that we'll be watching closely. But if you remember, Xi Jinping's first trip abroad after he became the leader of China was actually also to Russia. I was talking to Joseph Terigian earlier, uh, you know, about how Xi Jinping went to the Russian Federation. He met with Russian sinologists there and he spoke with them about how he remembered growing up hearing stories about his father working with the Soviet experts and how he grew up under the influence of this Russian literature and this Russian revolutionary spirit.
3: And what's interesting is he also told that group that he knew many people believed that his generation were oriented toward the West, but he wanted to tell these Russian sinologists that in fact, he had grown up under two literatures, the Chinese and the Russian literature, and he told him a story about how when he was a set-down youth in exile as a young person to the countryside, he loved reading this novel called What Is To Be Done, which included a famous revolutionary called Rachmethoff who would sleep on a bed of nails to build up his revolutionary will. And Xi Jinping said that he would sleep on a hot calm, the hot stone bed, or walk around in the wind and the rain to mimic him so that he could also build up his... A revolutionary alone and dedication.
0: But as a reminder, Xi Jinping is really preoccupied with the question of why the Soviet Union collapsed because he fears that the Chinese Communist Party could face the same kinds of crises. And that really affects the way that he runs China now. It affects the way that he has consolidated power and that he is against Western ideas like civil society, freedom of the press, and so on. And there's this famous speech that Xi gave shortly after becoming China's leader, where he warned that China should avoid repeating the Soviet Union's mistakes. And there are two main things that he said. First is that The Soviets lost control of the narrative of their history, so people didn't believe in it anymore. And the second thing was that they lost control of the military, and nobody was man enough to come forward to use violence to resolve the situation. And as I was talking to Joseph Turigian about, you know, Russian and Chinese leaders and all the ways they don't get along, he said it's actually an anomaly that Xi and Putin get along so well. And the reason for that really comes down to their worldviews.
3: In terms of their broad sense of how they think about the world, There are a lot of commonalities. They both see attacks on their history as Western plots to delegitimize their regimes. They both see traditional values as a bulwark against instability and see the West as tearing itself apart with cultural debates. They both believe that authoritarian regimes are better at managing modern challenges. They both want their countries to regain a lost status. Neither of them think Western democracy is real. They just think it's a way for individuals to bully other people. So they both have this view of the state as being a fundamental necessary bulwark against people who, when left to their own devices, can be very dangerous. A very conservative statist vision of the world.
0: So I think what is striking to me about all this is how much of a role the West, and in particular America, plays in the China-Russia relationship. As you said earlier, David, it's kind of a it's a three-way relationship. And in the 1950s, it was disagreement over how to relate to the West that sparked the Sino-Soviet split. And nowadays, it's alignment on this view of Western hostility towards them that brings Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin together. But it's also important to remember that alignment is not the same as alliance, right? So China and Russia, they are aligned, but they're also both thinking of their own interests first. And alignment also doesn't mean that the two sides are equal. Who is the big brother in this relationship? Who's getting more out of it? To answer those questions, we have two guests with us here on Drum Tower. They are Alexander or Sasha Gabuev, the incoming director of the Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center in Berlin, and our colleague Arkady Ostrovsky, the Economist Russia editor. Thank you both for joining us on Drum Tower today.
2: Pleasure to be with you, David and Alice. It's great to be here. Thanks.
0: So we decided to start off with the same question for both of you. And I want you to answer at the same time. Okay, so the question is, who is getting more out of this relationship? Russia or China? One, two, three. China. China. Surprise!
4: Surprise, surprise. It's Xi Jinping.
0: (laughs) Sasha, we can start with you. You've agreed that China is the one that gets more out of this relationship Can you break that down for us? What exactly is China getting?
4: I would say that the asymmetry is inbuilt. China is a great power with very large and very robust economy, whereas Russia is increasingly a one-dimensional economy. It's mostly about commodities and then the military industry. But then with sanctions, the asymmetry is now on steroids. So China is getting, A, a friendly neighbor to the north, and Keeping this colossal northern border at peace is very beneficial because it allows China to shift military resources elsewhere. Two, it gets a like-minded regime that's all the time supporting China and then can really be the bully on international arena where China can take a backseat. And finally, Russia is a terrific source of commodities. And I would probably throw modern Russian weapons to that mix. China is still relying on Russian surface-to-air missiles, fighter jets, and that's really crucial to potential planning around Taiwan or anything that comes up uh, in the maritime domain.
0: Katie, can I ask you about the other direction? What is Russia getting from China?
2: I would flip that question and say, you know, what is Russia losing? You know, Russia as a country is losing a lot out of its isolation, out of turning its back on the West. And the turn to China, even in the minds of the Kremlin ideologists, is sort of forced, compelled by what they see as a rejection of Russia by the West they're getting some backing of its militaristic and aggressive policy in the UN. I don't think this war in Ukraine could have happened without China being there. I think it's the backing of China, whether it's active backing, or whether it's implied, or whether it's just a quiescence, I think plays a major role in Putin's sense of impunity and ability to attack a neighbouring country.
1: So, Sasha, to what extent is China's money supporting Vladimir Putin's war chest?
4: It does, but we need to put that into context. Historically, it was really European market that was feeling Mr. Putin's war chest, including after Crimea annexation in 2014. And then last year after the war started, because of spike in the commodity prices, still bulk of the money came from Europe. And then China was about 30% of Russian budget revenue. But this year, 2023, will be very different because of effects of the European embargo, the price cap, the total destruction of gas trade between Russia and Europe. So we're going to see China playing a much bigger role as the major flow of cash into Putin's war chest.
1: And has China flouted the sanctions or does it follow them?
4: For now, we know that China is by and large abiding by the letter of sanctions Because China doesn't feel the need to circumvent the sanctions and help Russia at large. It gets all of the commodities that it wants with hefty discounts and basically on China's terms. Because here's the thing, as beneficial as this relationship is for China, definitely China understands that its relationship with the West is of paramount importance. Problem is that Chinese leaders believe that this relationship with the U.S. is not downward trajectory, regardless of what China does. It's only a matter of time where there will be more export controls, there will be more hostile measures towards China. And then unless China fundamentally changes, according to American preferences, nothing will impact this trajectory. So even if China throws Vladimir Putin under the bus, the expectation is Beijing is that the West will pocket this and say, oh, good boy, Xi Jinping. Yeah, you helped us to topple this terrible villain. Now, what about Xinjiang? What about Taiwan? All of this question will pop up. China is happy to play this game because Russia is surely and rapidly falling into China's pocket.
1: So let me ask both of you, Cardi and Sasha, a simultaneous question again. Does Xi Jinping have a lot of influence over Vladimir Putin? One Two, three. No. No.
2: (laughs) Arkady, why not? In terms of the influence of the kind we're used to, you know, could Xi Jinping have a word with Vladimir Putin, tell him it's a bad idea? The answer is no, because I think that China would never take such a step in the first place. Why would it? I mean, Sasha laid out extremely well why this war in Ukraine is in China's interest. But what happens in China is crucial to his ability to do things to what extent the two countries are dependent on each other. Russian reforms in the late 80s were driven, and the whole collapse of the Soviet communist system, in a way, were driven by the idea of the prosperous West, that there was a model out there that Russia should follow. Today, the perception of Russian elite is
4: dependent on their faith in the Chinese system, it's very Western to put China and Russia in the same box. I think China looks at itself as a very unique Chinese model. And they don't look that Russian model is that successful.
0: We've spoken a lot about Russia's growing dependence on China. How does Putin present this domestically? Is it talked about in the Russian media? What is the narrative?
4: So in all of the mainstream government-controlled media... There is a ban on criticizing China, and it's very rare that you hear criticism on the major television channels or reading the major newspapers. And I think that this racism or attitude towards China as something inferior to Russia is gone. But the elites of Russia, I think that there is an increasing trend among people I know, senior leaders of state-owned banks, their families, people who are running the state-owned companies, senior officials, are increasingly looking for ways how their kids get Mandarin. And some of them get their Mandarin tutors from age two or three. So there is this trend line that since we are sanctioned by the West, and even if Vladimir Putin is gone, we will not necessarily go back to the family of nations in the West.
1: That's amazingly interesting. So that leads us to our last question, which we want to ask both of you. And we'll start with Sasha. In one sentence, could China end up a winner from this Ukraine war?
4: I think China is already a winner. Russia as a junior partner and distracted West is a net price for China. I don't think there are any winners in this war.
2: I think this war doesn't have a natural end. Nobody knows what victory is. I think we are watching the collapse of the last big continental European empire. I think this is only Act One in Ukraine. I think Act Two is to come in Russia itself. I think the collapse of Russia will be disaster not just for itself, for Europe, but it will also be very traumatic for China.
1: Alexander, Gubov, Sasha, and Arkady Ostrovsky, thank you so much for joining us on Drumtower.
4: Thank you. It was a pleasure being with you. Thank you for having us. So,
1: with these two episodes, we asked two big questions. Does Xi Jinping regret his backing for Vladimir Putin so far? And does he have a plan to end up the winner uh, from this? And there's a grim, cynical answer to both of those that he doesn't regret it so far because he thinks that this could still end up fine for Vladimir Putin, that he could end up with a deal that looks okay in Ukraine. And then the next day, China will offer to come in and rebuild the shattered cities of Ukraine uh, with Chinese loans. I think there is, though, a price to displaying just how ruthlessly, cynically China pursues its self-interest in a conflict like this, that there are Western countries that did have a naive view of China. And that's why they thought China might want to play the mediator. And so I think Xi Jinping thinks that he can just brush off those cries of dismay from Western powers about his effective support for Vladimir Putin, because China's market is so large and China has all the growth they need. But something has changed, Alice. You know, when I talk to European ambassadors and diplomats here in Beijing, something has changed over the last year. And I don't think that it's entirely good news for Xi Jinping, for his cynicism and coldness to be so much better understood across the West.
0: Yes, David, you are right. There has been a wake-up call, if you will, on how China behaves and the way that the Chinese Communist Party, again, is always out for their own interests, but I would point out that at the same time, China's leaders are not only cold, hard calculators of self-interest, but they're also patient and they're able to take a long-term view. And in some ways, I'm worried that in the next year, as this war continues to drag out, Maybe from the Chinese government's perspective, they are just waiting to see when European countries and populations lose interest in making sacrifices for Ukraine. Maybe they're counting on companies to be excited about coming back to China. China is now open. It's time to invest. It's time to make money again. And so I do think the jury is still out. We still have to see what happens, especially in the coming months, the ways that China is going to try to come out on top of this conflict. China is waiting to see where the limits of Western unity are. There are many ways that they could still win, and that's not only a win for China in terms of seeing Russia succeed, but it's a win for them in terms of how they will calculate their actions on Taiwan and in this region. So thank you to all of the Drum Tower listeners who have been in touch with us. Remember, if you have something you want to tell us, you can always email us at drum dot com.
1: And thank you for listening to Drumtown.
0: Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barclay Bram produced this episode. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim and music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell.